How about one of the canal boat songs? Do you know this one? I got a mule and the name is Sal. Fifteen miles on the Erie Canal. She's a good old worker and a good old pal. Sixteen miles on the Erie Canal. We've hauled some barges in our day. Filled with lumber, coal and hay. And we know every inch of the way. From Albany to Buffalo. Welcome back to Mr. Cornwell's Corner. I hope you enjoyed that little intro music. Uh, the title of the song is Low Bridge. It's also known as the Erie Canal song for obvious reasons, but it was sung by a very famous American folk singer by the name of Pete Seeger. Pete Seeger sung that version of the Erie Canal. So today's podcast is going to be about the American system. And at the end of the podcast, you understand why we opened up with the Erie Canal for the intro music. So welcome all. Um, I hope you enjoy listening to these podcasts. And if you could, be sure to hit that like button and ring that bell so you won't miss any of our exciting new podcasts as they drop each week. So the American system is a plan introduced by Henry Clegg. So let's do a little quick background on Henry Clegg. Um, Henry Clay is a well-educated politician from the state of Kentucky. Uh, At this time period, Kentucky is part of the West, so it is pretty rural area, so it is frontier land. So so Clay um, comes to Congress before the War of 1812. He is one of the young war hawks, and he is basically representing Kentucky in the federal government, from before the War of 1812 until his death in 1852. So for almost 50 years, Henry Clay is in service to the state of Kentucky and the national government in some capacity, whether it be a senator, a secretary of state, or some capacity. Now, he aspires to be president. Um, the highest he ever got was secretary of state. He never became president. But what I can tell you is Clay starts off as a young war hawk, before the War of 1812, that's someone who's for war. And by the end of his career, 1850s, Henry Clay is one of the most powerful congressmen in Congress of all times. So, so he wields a lot of influence as the year goes on, years go on. And he begins, a war hawk is someone who advocates war. So he begins as a young politician who wants to go to war with Britain over their harassment of ships, 
over their um, incitement of Native Americans out west and their impressment of American sailors. By the end of his career, he's known as the Great Compromiser because he gets several compromises through Congress um, during his career that helped put off conflict and eventually the Civil War. It's not a coincidence the Civil War was fought after Clay's death. That gives you how much, an idea of how much influence he actually had. So Clay was a member of the Whig Party. He was a founding member of the Whig Party. Um, the Whigs come around after the Federalist Party dies out, and the Whig Party is around until the 1850s. What destroys the Whig Party is they can't come to a national stance on the issue of slavery or abolition. So the party divides fatally in the 1850s and um, over the issue of slavery northern Whigs and southern Whigs can't come to a compromise on it and it eventually kills the party so during this time period we're studying uh, the two major parties are the Whigs and the Democrats at this time period okay so let's take a short commercial break and since we're at the Whig and Democrats I want you to listen just to this little announcement comparing the Whigs and Democrats and really gives you a brief overview of the Whig Party. Enjoy. I'll be right back. You, as we look at the second party system of the Jacksonian Democrats and the Whigs, these parties formed during the divisive presidency of Andrew Jackson. As Henry Clay and his followers became frustrated with the actions Jackson took against the National Bank and usage of the veto power against congressional legislation. Okay, I think it's best to frame the major disagreements between the two parties around Henry Clay's American system. As you probably already know, Henry Clay was an incredibly influential politician for several decades. He had an idea that he wanted to tie the country together economically, and that would bring all sorts of benefits, especially in creating an interdependent and unified nation. In order to do this, a lot of infrastructure like national roads, canals, and increasingly railroads would need to be built. Clay wanted the federal and state governments to help subsidize these expensive projects, but in order to do that, you need revenue. So Clay proposed tariffs that would help raise revenue and also protect industry from foreign competition. Another key cog in this system would be the continuation and maybe expansion of powers of the National Bank, which could provide loans to governments and help keep a stable monetary system. Also in general, Whigs favored wage labor and wanted to help entrepreneurs start businesses. On the other side were the Jacksonian Democrats. They felt Clay's American system would go against the yeoman farmer ideal espoused by Thomas Jefferson. They also favored a balanced budget and were against deficit spending for infrastructure. Many Democrats were also against tariffs that hurt cotton plantations in the South, as foreign countries like Great Britain would reciprocate tariffs on America's main export, cotton. The Democrats were against the National Bank, which was Jackson's major battle in his second term as president. And in general, the Democrats were in favor of slave labor system in the South and would like to see it expanded into the territories. Okay, another major issue that comes up in the 1840s is the Mexican-American War. Both sides are in favor of expansion and manifest destiny. However, there are a significant number of Whigs that were against aggressive expansion as seen in the Mexican-American War, while the Democrats headed by James K. Polk at the time were in favor of it. Finally, looking at the last major development of the era, and that was the reform movements that sprung up from the Second Great Awakening. The Whigs were more in favor of reform, like temperance, public schools, and prison reform, while the Democrats opposed these types of reforms and preferred individual freedom of choice. Okay, that was another quick one, and it wraps up all the videos that go with the AP. All right, welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that little quick announcement comparing the Whig Party and the Democratic Party's views during this time period, and Henry Clay is one of the leading Whigs, and Andrew Jackson is the leading Democrat. So um, let's get into the American system. What the American system was was Henry Clay's plan for the United States to catch up 
with the rest of the world. When I say the rest of the world, I really mean Europe when it comes to the Industrial Revolution. The Industrial Revolution sweeps through Europe really in the 18th century, the late 1700s. So what the Industrial Revolution is, is the period of time when machines start to replace man as the main source of labor. Begins as water and then becomes steam and eventually gasoline engines. So, so the United States is behind. So Clay's plan, which is called the American system, is his plan for Congress to help the United States catch up with the Industrial Revolution, the rest of the world, and Europe. Um, so his plan really is three parts. So the first part of his plan calls for a protective tariff. What a tariff is, a tariff is a tax on imported or foreign goods. The purpose of a tariff is twofold. One, it protects a country's manufacturing. And two, it raises revenue for the federal government. So how does a tariff protect American manufacturing? some countries, the labor is cheaper. Some countries, the materials are cheaper. Some countries, they don't have much overhead, not much government control. So, in other words, American companies might have to pay more for labor, might have to pay more for materials. And when they make products, they can't sell and compete with foreign goods. Because by the time you make something in another country and ship it to the United States, it's still cheaper than what the American companies can make it for. So tariffs are taxes that are just paid by foreign manufacturers. If you produce the product in the United States, you don't pay a tariff. So what it does is allow the a country's manufacturing to compete with international manufacturing in your own country, and it really protects the country's manufacturing and allows it to grow. Um, most of the country's manufacturing takes place in the North. So during this time period, the North was in favor of a higher protective tariff. The South was against it because in the South – a protective tariff uh, doesn't benefit them greatly because there's not a lot of manufacturing. In fact, it hurts them because the main export to the South by this time is cotton, and Britain is the main consumer in Europe of cotton. And if we raise our tariffs, Britain's going to raise their tariffs, which means the South, the southern plantation owners, are going to pay higher taxes on their cotton and less money. So step one of Clay's plan calls for a higher tariff to protect a country's manufacturing and raise revenue for the federal government. Step two is he's calling for internal improvements at the expense of the federal government. This hasn't happened before. Up until this time, any internal improvements have been paid for by the states or local governments. So when I say internal improvements, I'm talking about canals. I'm talking about bridges, eventually railroads. So what Clay is proposing is raise the tariffs, generate revenue for the federal government, protect the country's manufacturing, and then build a transportation system that links the north, the south, and the west. So, so basically what he wants to do is help American transportation, American manufacturing catch up with Europe. The first superhighway is canals. Canals are man-made rivers that connect existing bodies of water. So in the early 19th century, it is much easier to get around by water than it is by land. So what the canals do is allow you to put stuff on a boat, 
ship it long distance and not have to take it off and put it on a wagon to go overland and put it back on a boat. So it connects bodies of water. It's the first really transportation superhighway in the United States. Canals come before railroads, and railroads come before roads and airplanes. Okay? So let's take a short commercial break. And um, on this commercial, I want you to learn the history of the first successful steamboat in U.S. history. Enjoy. Pod. On the 17th of August, 1807, the world's first successful commercial steamboat service began on the Hudson River between New York and Albany. Experiments with steamboats had accelerated in the last half of the 18th century. The enormous Newcomen steam engine was found to be impractical for ships, but the invention of the Bolton and Watt engine laid the foundations for the development of boilers and other components that could withstand higher internal pressure. In America, inventor John Fitch had sailed a steamboat on the Delaware River as early as 1787. However, it was commercially unsuccessful, and Fitch was forced to abandon further developments. Meanwhile, European improvements to steamship design led to the launch of the Charlotte Dundas in 1803, which was successfully tested on the Forth and Clyde Canal in Scotland. Present at the trials of the Charlotte Dundas was Robert Fulton, an American inventor who later moved to France where he met the US ambassador Robert R. Livingston. They unsuccessfully tested a steamship on the River Seine, but continued their partnership after Fulton returned to America in 1806, where Livingston had the monopoly to steam navigation on the Hudson River. On the 17th of August 1807, the North River steamboat of Claremont departed New York City under the control of Captain Andrew Brink. The ship could carry up to 100 passengers, and was able to complete the 150-mile trip in 32 hours. This was a dramatic improvement over regular sailing ships that might take almost four days to complete the same journey. Although it was nicknamed Fulton's Folly due to the belief that the noisy vessel would eventually explode, the ship began scheduled passenger services on September the 4th and became a commercial success. All right, welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that uh, brief commercial about Robert Fulton's ship, the Claremont, the first successful steamboat ship in the United States, which launched in 1807. All right, before the commercial break, we were discussing uh, Henry Clay's American system, and the first two parts of it out of three, one was protective tariffs, the other was internal improvements, transportation systems paid for by the federal government, okay? And what we're talking about there was the most important was canals at this time period. And, of course, the intro music was the Erie Canal. Um, The Erie Canal was actually built and paid for by the state of New York. But the Erie Canal is the first of many successful canals. What the Erie Canal did was it linked the Hudson River in the east to Lake Erie in the west, So what that meant was any people or goods coming from Europe or really anywhere that come through now go past New York City. They come up the Atlantic. New York City's at the mouth of the Hudson River and Atlantic Ocean. So you have to go past New York City. You go up the Hudson River. 
You can take the Erie Canal out to Lake Erie, and now you're in the American West. And then, of course, there's many other canals that connect other lakes and whatnot. Erie Canal is not the last one. It's just the first one of a canal boom. So the Erie Canal is the most famous because what it really did is forever link the east to the west in the United States. It made it easier, cheaper, and much faster to travel from the east coast to the west, which at that time was our Midwest today. To give you an idea of how much... Before the Erie Canal, if you were leaving New York City and you wanted to go out to present-day Ohio, it would be easier and faster for you to get on a ship, sail around the Atlantic, around Florida, up the Gulf, up the Mississippi, and then get off there and travel by land to Ohio, or the Ohio River to Ohio, then get off. Then it would be for you to go overland from New York City all the way out to Ohio. So that gives you an idea of the impact of the Erie Canal. Uh, the canal boom leads to westward expansion in the United States, a dramatic increase of people and goods moving west. Okay, But the Erie Canal was actually paid for by the state of New York, not the federal government. But it is the best example of the canal because it's the first and famous one. So the last part of Clay's system, the third part of Clay's system, calls for a national bank. Um, the national bank was created by Alexander Hamilton back in the 1790s, and it was authorized by George Washington, first president. Um, it had expired. The Democratic Republicans had allowed it to expire, and Clay wants to bring back the bus or the Bank of the United States, as it's known. Its nickname is the bus. And the reason he wants to do that is if the federal government's taking in more tariffs, money, they need a system to hold that money and help pay for these improvements. Okay, And, of course, the Whigs are in support of a national bank. The Democratic Republicans are against it. Jackson believes the national bank only benefits the financial elite. It's an institution for the rich to control the economy. That's what he believes. So he's against a national bank. Jackson believes banks should be held at a state level, not the federal government. So, once again, Clay's plan called the American System to help the United States catch up in the Industrial Revolution, three parts, protective tariffs, internal improvements paid for by the federal government, and bringing back or resurrecting the National Bank of the United States or the bus. Well, I hope you enjoyed this today, and I hope you got something out of this. I'm going to leave you with a parody song of Andrew Jackson. Uh, this is by Mr. Betts. And it is from a very famous movie in the 80s, Flashdance. The song is known as Maniac, but this is a parody of Maniac with Andrew Jackson. Enjoy, and I'll see you next time on Mr. Cornwell's Corner. <laughs>